This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Gunshot wounds are deadlier than they were a decade ago. Colorado researchers studied victims of gun violence back to 2000. These were all patients at Denver Health Medical Center. The new findings are in the Journal of the American Medical Association. Dr. Angela Sawaya is lead researcher. She's on CU's Anschutz Medical Campus and joined me via Skype. Thanks for being on the program. Thank you very much, Ryan. How are gunshot wounds getting deadlier? Well, uh, they're getting deadlier because the injuries they cause are becoming more serious and because they're becoming more numerous. So a patient arriving today with gunshot wounds in an emergency room will have more severe injuries and will have more injuries that are much more difficult to treat than 10 years ago. That is to say they're simply coming in with more bullet wounds, and those bullet wounds are what? Are they, are they larger? Are they more penetrating? Well, we have several ways to measure the severity of wounds. How much each organ, so not just the wounds you see, but what happens inside the body of the patient, so injuries to the lungs, to the heart, the liver, to the spleen, to the kidneys, and so forth. And especially vascular injuries, injuries to the vessels that carry your blood. And we know that the size of these injuries has become bigger. So more of your liver has been destroyed. More of your kidney has been destroyed. More of your heart has been uh, destroyed. The second thing we are noticing, and actually that was what motivated this study, is the patients arriving with multiple bullets in injuries in the brain and the heart and the pelvis. And you can imagine how many teams of physicians you need to treat all those injuries in separate parts of the body, not to mention their effect together is different than their separate effect. Hmm. So you need specialists to address a particular organ or a particular part of the body. And all of this, you say, is making gunshot wounds deadlier. Let's explore first how much more deadly uh, over the last decade. They are becoming about 6% deadlier every two years. Every couple of years, they go up 6%. Hmm. And since the year 2000. Since 2000. And the, the size of the wounds, how, how much are those increasing? Well, that varies a lot. It's not useful clinically to give you a number. And and I'm trying to run away from the numbers. Uh, We do have numbers, but they mean different things for different organs. A tiny little hole in the brain can make a lot more damage than a big hole in your leg. Do you see what I'm saying? I do. Size does not matter here. But the number of bullet wounds, I imagine, does. And what has been the increase there? Because you say that patients coming in to Denver Health, uh, more often have multiple wounds. Yes. Uh, we just got a patient uh, a few weeks ago with six bullet wounds, and that does not surprise any trauma surgeon now. We used to have a patient who would arrive with one or two gunshot wounds. That was 10 years ago. Now they arrived to six, seven bullets. The obvious question here is why all this is true. Does it have to do with the guns themselves, the people shooting the guns, the ammunition in them? What can you say? Well, uh, I can say two things about that. The first is 
we're going to go in the area of speculation. And as a scientist, I don't like too much to go for speculation. There is a this profound desire from all researchers to get the data that will respond your question exactly. I would be able to tell you what type of gun, what type of magazine capacity, if there was more than one perpetrator involved. These kind of data are very difficult to find. Now, talking to trauma surgeons across the country, they will all tell you that they know exactly what's happening. We have guns that are much more dangerous now because they have a higher magazine capacity. The ability to shoot multiple times without any time in between these shots makes them incredibly dangerous. Uh, but as you say, that's a hypothesis. Do you have others? Oh, I think the fact that we have more people buying guns, so purchase of guns has increased over time. Purchase of more powerful guns has increased over time, have something to do with it. When you talk about more powerful guns, are you hinting there at, at what have been called assault weapons? Weapons that used to be banned, but then that ban expired. Mm -hmm. That's exactly what I'm talking about. I'm talking about guns that have the ability to shoot multiple times. And as we saw in the tragic incident in Orlando, which is... Um, just one incident in multiple incidents in the last few years, they are increasing by a, an incredible amount. Nobody would be able to harm these many people with the same gun they use to kill an elk. So you've talked to us about the fact that gunshot wounds, at least those studied at Denver Health, have become more lethal. And at the same time, I think of advances in medicine that would presumably mean doctors could keep patients alive. Why isn't that the case? That's a very astute question. And I think that's exactly why our group wanted to study all the injuries, all the traumatic injuries, not just firearms. We wanted to know if for other injuries, how well we were able to treat them. And as if you look at the graph of the study we just published in JAMA, it's a very clear trend. All the other injuries, motor vehicle accidents, pedestrian accidents, bicycle injuries, you name it, motorcycles, anything is going down. So we are indeed being able to save many more lives. What we can't do is to outpace the advancements and the dangerous effects of guns. You see, we do everything we can to make cars safer. Firearms work in the exact opposite direction. Technology makes them more likely to injure, not less likely. But isn't that what I want if I'm a gun owner, to protect myself? I, I don't want something that just inflicts a little bit of harm to someone trying to hurt me. I want them dead. I'm not, I'm not sure what, what you would want as a gun owner, but we have plenty of studies showing that it's a very rare fact that somebody who possesses a gun was saved by their own gun. Well, on the subject of research, in 1996, Congress essentially barred the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention from putting money into studying gun violence. 
the president lifted that ban, President Obama, but Congress has blocked funding. The American Medical Association recently came out in favor of funding research. Um, In what ways have you run up against that? We actually planned this study when we started two years ago as a statewide study. And we couldn't do it. There was so much red tape to obtain data that we could merge with the death records that we ended up reducing the study to just the Denver area thanks to the willingness of Denver Health to provide their data so openly. Of course, other studies have showed this in Newark and other locations across the states um, showing that Colorado is no different and Denver is probably just a small picture of what's happening in other parts of the country. And how does that relate to the federal stance on gun research and funding it? I have young colleagues who are very motivated to study firearm injuries. And they have confessed to me as a, as a senior researcher that they prefer to not go into that path because it's so difficult to obtain the data and there is very little funding available from federal agencies to fund their time while they try to work out the red tape that involves getting data on firearm injuries. If I am going to construct the databases we need, we're going to have to face lots of issues regarding confidentiality, protecting patients' identity in this type of investigations. This takes time, precious time. This time needs to be funded so we can make a living. That's and what, what is the nature of the data that you're missing? Can you be more specific about what you'd like to get your hands on? I would like to get my hands on the type of gun we're using, the size of the magazine capacity, the caliber of the bullet, and the situation where that happened, where there are more than one perpetrator. So is this a behavioral thing that we should be working on? It's not our suspicion. We suspect it's related to the gun itself, not to behaviors. But of course, there's somebody behind the gun shooting it. Couldn't you get that from police reports? I I wish. But think about it. If I want the data from the police, I'm going to have to request the data from the police with the identification so I can merge that with the medical record. In the minute you're asking for people's identities, we have to do a lot of procedures. That's That's a good thing. It's not a bad thing. We should have to have lots of procedures to obtain people's identities. But that takes time and a lot of work. And for the state, I was unable to obtain permission to merge death records with medical records. There might be some listening who think it's not right to look at the gun. It's right to look at the person shooting the gun. That is, people kill people. Guns don't kill people. What would you say to that? I would say that people with no guns do not kill people. People with no guns cannot give gunshot wounds (laughs) to anybody. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. Dr. Angela Sawaya is a professor and researcher on the CU Anschutz Medical Campus. Her study of gunshot wounds in Denver appears in the Journal of the American Medical Association. Dr. Sawaya joined us via Skype. We'll be right back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. 
It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. One day, the water was just fine in three towns near Colorado Springs, Security, Widefield, and Fountain. The next day, the water wasn't fine. An advisory from the Environmental Protection Agency said portions of those towns' water supplies contained unhealthy levels of potentially harmful chemicals. Pregnant or lactating women and bottle-fed infants are most at risk. Roy Heald is district manager for the town of Security, Colorado. And Roy, welcome to the program. Thank you. Security is one of three towns in the Colorado Springs area, along with Fountain and Widefield, that are affected by this advisory. What type of chemicals are in the water and uh, where do they come from? Orion, the, the chemicals that are in the water are called PFCs. That's a suite of chemicals, but generally, I guess they're used in a number of products, uh, firefighting foam, uh, Teflon pans, Scotchgard. They're found in carpet, in clothing, in food wrapping, uh, like mi- microwave popcorn bags. So they're everywhere in the environment. We don't know yet where the chemicals are coming from. Uh, I guess from my reading, oftentimes they come from, you know, nearby chemical manufacturers or there seems to be a link to military installations that use firefighting foam. And that would be true in the area around security, I'm guessing, with the military presence. Well, it's certainly a possibility, and I think that's what people are looking at. What are the risks if the vulnerable groups that we mentioned in the introduction drink this water? My understanding is the the entirety of the health effects are not clear and uh, have not been fully determined. But the primary concern is with pregnant women, uh, women that intend to become pregnant because these chemicals uh, accumulate in their bodies and then can be transferred to fetuses. I think the other concern then is for women that are breastfeeding or infants that are bottle feeding. And, And that's really the sensitive population One concern is low birth weight, for instance. So briefly, run through the steps that you're taking so people can have clean water. Fortunately, the Southern Delivery System, which is a a major local water supply, that water supply came on about a month and a half ago in late April. And so we've been able to take advantage of that. That's a surface water supply, which is unaffected by these chemicals. Uh, Likewise, we also use Fountain Valley Authority water, another surface water supply out of Pueblo Reservoir, unaffected uh, by the chemicals. The concern is uh, the well water that we have. So what we're, our primary strategy is to blend well water, well, first of all, minimize its use, and then to the extent we have to use it to meet demand, to blend it with those surface supplies to bring the levels down. Uh, unfortunately, you know, we're in the middle of summer and, and demand is the highest right now. Uh, Of course, EPA just changed this health advisory on May 19th, and these levels are dramatically lower than the previous health advisory. So the timing couldn't have been worse from a water supply standpoint. Yeah, let's get Um, uh, some of the background here, which is that it's not that there was some huge spike in these kinds of chemicals. The EPA advisory came out in May, this new one. It only just made headlines uh, across the state when the Denver Post reported on it last week. This is not a legally binding advisory, but it it does carry tremendous impact, I gather. What is your understanding about why it changed and why now? 
Well, I'm not real clear on that. I guess my assumption is that uh, the science has improved to the point or proven the point that it's uh, more of a concern than previously thought. Hmm. Uh, EPA has not communicated that to us, so that's my speculation. I say that. I guess they haven't succinctly communicated that. The actual health advisory is about 861 pages, which, frankly, I have not read. So maybe there's background material there that would you know, allow you to understand how the change came. Will you get to read the, the many pages of the EPA directives? Um, I don't even have time to read the newspaper right now. So, and, and frankly, again, I'm, I'm, my background, I'm an accountant. I'm a water district manager. I'm not a scientist. So I doubt if the 861 pages would mean a whole lot to me. But they provided a, a four-page uh, document, kind of a, a guidance for us to use. And that's, that's what we use. I'm not sure we really need to know all the background behind it. So the solutions that you've outlined, are those temporary or is there a longer term kind of filtration fix here? Well, I think the ultimate answer is treatment of the well water so that it does meet these health advisories and and is also poised to meet future either health advisories or regulations that, you know, for other chemicals that we don't know about now. Um, That's part of the problem is it takes so long to modify a water system the southern delivery system that I spoke of that just came online has been over 20 years in the planning. Mm-hmm. So this health advisory is is not even a month old, and it's just impossible to react and to modify a water system that quickly. And this idea of a longer-term fix, boy, it sounds expensive, Roy. Yeah, I think it's going to be very expensive. Um, Fortunately, through six, literally 60 years of planning, uh, our district has been able to keep water rates low over that 60-year time period. We have the lowest rates in the region, but I think uh, that's going to change. I, I don't know that we'll have the highest rates, but they will certainly – we'll need to raise rates and, and customers. Uh, there, there is no mo- other money. You know, we've been asking for help from anybody that would listen EPA, the state, but nobody's got any money. So I'm afraid that it's going to be on our customers. But it is very expensive. And and the technology isn't really even proven. These chemicals are so new that uh, there's just not a lot of science out there to definitively determine that this is the best treatment method. Every method has a downside as well. When you take these chemicals out of the water, you have to do something with them. So you have to take them to a hazardous landfill or dispose of them somehow. Well, so there's, it's so there's, fascinating. You, I, would, I think of filtration and I never think about what has to be done with what gets filtered out. Right. Yeah. Well, and, so is, yeah. there, is there some possibility that if you identified what the source of these chemicals is, that you could hold them responsible? Well, Ryan, I'll do my best to answer that question, but once again, I'm not a lawyer. Uh, and this, again, this is this is very complex because these are unregulated chemicals from a water standpoint. And uh, my understanding is they're not a hazardous waste from a land use standpoint. So I don't know there's any regulation that prohibits somebody from disposing of these chemicals or, you know, introducing them into the ground or I don't know that there's any regulations to say that however these chemicals were disposed is not proper. So 
if it's not illegal to dump them or dispose of them, then I, I don't know how you hold them responsible. We're very hopeful that that turns out to be the case and that somebody, you know, not only will be found to be a responsible party, but then will step up in some way to help uh, fund these improvements. I mean, we've already spent tens of thousands of dollars this year that wasn't budgeted on this issue. What about getting together with Fountain and Widefield, which have also been affected by this, and asking for a disaster declaration? Well, uh, I, I personally don't feel that this rises to the level of a disaster declaration because these are health advisories. And what a health advisory says is that our responsibility is to notify the public and to reduce exposure to the extent uh, we can. These are not regulations. This is not Flint. This is not lead. And it's just a whole different situation. By the way, our water does currently meet all federal and state regulatory requirements. I want to thank you for taking the time in all of this to talk with us. Thank you, Ryan. I appreciate the opportunity. Roy Heald is district manager for the town of Security near Colorado Springs. Water treatments also made news recently with the disclosure that elevated levels of lead were discovered in drinking fountains and sinks in two Jefferson County elementary schools. Jeffco officials said work is being done to mitigate the lead presence before classes resume in August. Coming up, economic woes mean more Puerto Ricans are resettling on the mainland, including in Colorado. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Puerto Rico is having a very rough time. The U.S. territory is tens of billions of dollars in debt, with a July 1st deadline to pay some creditors. Zika has hit the island, and many of the victims of the Orlando shooting were Puerto Rican. We're going to focus for now on the economic woes. The U.S. House recently passed a bill to try to help the island recover. The Senate will consider the bill next. Perhaps Puerto Rico's most famous son right now is Lin-Manuel Miranda, creator and star of the musical Hamilton. In his hip-hop style, he pleaded with Congress to help the island. 3.5 million American civilians are on the hook for billions. Vulture funds are circling and lobbying for payout. There's nothing left to tax or cut. We're stuck. We need a way out. Allow them to restructure. There's no structure for what happens if you let this crisis play out. When May is less than a day out, it's nonpartisan. The hard part is in convincing Congress Puerto Rico matters, so their heart is in the fight for relief. Not a bailout, just relief. A belief that you can That is from last week tonight with John Oliver. As a result of the crisis, Puerto Rico is experiencing a population drain, losing more than 200,000 people in the last five years. Many have come to the mainland U.S., including Luis Ponce, who recently settled in Denver. Luis joins us by phone, and uh, welcome to the program, sir. Thank you, Ryan. Thank you for, for having me. It's a, it's a great pleasure, and uh, you know, thank you for your radio listeners that are tuning to Colorado Matters this morning. You were born and raised around San Juan, the capital of Puerto Rico, but you've spent a lot of your adult life off the island, which we'll talk about. Uh, but first, what has it been like to see Puerto Rico in such dire straits? Well, it's, uh, it's definitely a, a hurtful scenario to see uh, your own country go down uh, like that, uh, economically, socially. Uh, it's a... Uh, you know, it's uh, it's painful that you know uh, many of my countrymen, you know, have no other choice than to leave the island for, for you know, for 
sustaining them and, and their families. Uh, it's 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 a destiny that no no country uh, uh, should should have, and uh, and that's I think it's it's a wake up call for many Puerto Ricans, especially uh, for the government. Uh, but Ryan, uh, this is something that uh, that it was. Uh, I would like to use the word predicted many years ago. Uh, there were uh, a lot of uh, uh, critics uh, uh, to this current arrangement Puerto Rico had. Uh, you go back 40, 60 years back, they were steady and very, uh, uh, even to some extent, violent opposition to what were U.S. plans on the on its territory. I mean, as, as you mentioned in the introduction, you know, Puerto Rico is a U.S. territory. And the recent developments, legal developments and economical developments have showed what these uh, uh, um, opposers to the uh, Commonwealth regime have uh, have said one, you know, all these years, through all these years. Puerto yeah, Rico. Let, me, let me say that the, this crisis, the current crisis, really dates back about a decade to when a lot of corporate tax breaks ended, jobs started disappearing. That reduced how much taxes the government could collect. And so... The island exactly. amassed, amassed a mountain of debt yeah. to avoid cutting government services, just a, a sketch there. But it, it does show that this crisis didn't just emerge recently. Uh, you, you talked about this not just being an economic question, but a social question. When you've gone back to Puerto Rico recently, what do you notice? What are the changes you feel that make it different from the Puerto Rico you grew up in? Well, uh, there's definitely less economic activity. Uh, uh, past, you know, bustling streets, they were full of commerce, restaurants, uh, uh, you know, local-owned businesses. They are, most of them gone. You know, you go through uh, uh, blocks and blocks of, of seating in Santurce, which is uh, close to the center uh, of San Juan. And, uh, in, I mean, and that's in the capital, right? Like in other towns, I think, like uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda also mentioned that when he appealed to Congress, uh, you know, the smaller towns in the, um, you know, in the, uh, in the in Puerto Rico's interior are just totally, you know, abandoned. Mm. Uh, my parents were just here visiting from Puerto Rico, and, you know, uh, they just confirmed what I saw when... Uh, when I was there last year, uh, you know, just inactivity. Uh, young people, my generation, are leaving the country in droves. There's no opportunities. There's a small. Uh, I will say, you know, this crisis has also brought a sense of uh, of belonging. You know, the people that stay to make things happen. So there's like a small renaissance. You know, not not everything is bad news. There's a small renaissance of people like going back to the land and. And you know, and growing foodstuffs, and like dedicating themselves to agriculture that probably ten years ago didn't happen, right? So, so I mean, it's so you're it's, saying that it, it has some, led to a certain amount of cohesion among those who have stayed and who, exactly. I, I suppose, are, are getting back to some of the the basic elements of an economy. It sounds like a, almost an agrarian yeah, economy. Really and what about? Really. What, let me ask you about crime, because sure. the natural question is when unemployment is high. Uh, does crime increase? Has your family uh, perhaps experienced that? Well, uh, there's definitely a rise in crime. Uh, absolutely, and you know, I'm very fearful for my, you know, like uh, elder parents are still living there in their in, in their house by themselves. Uh, it's rising. Uh, you know, you have to be more cautious than ever before. Uh, but I've also been. Uh, what we know, I've got also is like uh, because so many people are leaving the island. Uh, in some types of crimes are also going down. 
Uh, so, you know, you have that effect. I mean, you, the U.S. has always been a revolving door for Puerto Ricans. So this exodus has been happening like uh, uh, when, the crisis, when the crisis started like 10 years ago. Mm. So a lot of people, especially, and I will say people that had like lower education and in some cases were like, were in the, you know, uh, most wanted list of the Puerto Rican police. They just left the island and they went to to usually Central Florida, right? Uh, uh, so there's there's been a, uh, and I think the the most recent uh, statistics of the government it says that the crime has been like an all time low in the last ten to fifteen years. So again, you know, it's it's a double effect, right? It's uh, a, a double effect. Uh, yeah, sure. I mean. So uh-huh. mm-hmm. th- this is not your first time living in the U.S. You went to college at Georgetown. You later lived in, in Peru, where you met your wife. W- was your decision, right. I guess, to move to Lima, was that motivated in part by Puerto Rico's financial troubles? And and even though it was several years ago, a sense that you couldn't get a good job there. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, that was part of it. The, the, the other was uh, I wanted to... To experience what was living, you know, in a in a country that, in some sense, was uh, more uh, close to Puerto Rico's culture and language, and and to see uh, the uh, the renaissance these uh, uh, you know Latin American countries were having, uh, because Puerto Rico wasn't having them, you know, and uh, you know I I thought, well, I mean, we are U.S. citizens, we are under the U.S. flag, and the constant. Uh, 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 like fear-monging comment that most Puerto Ricans have had is like, oh, Puerto Rico is better off than all these, you know, little republics in Latin America. We're always better. But that wasn't the case, you know. I mean, uh, in some respects, of course, I mean, the quality of life is better in Puerto Rico. But in others, you know, uh, Puerto Rico hasn't, I mean, the economy hasn't grown in the last 10 years, 10, 15 years. Well, on the contrary, you know, in Peru, Colombia, uh, even Bolivia, we also had the chance to, to visit. I mean, those countries are are really uh, growing uh, incredibly. Uh, so why, you know, why? And I, and I think that 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 question, like the bottom of that question, is uh, might help us respond. Why? What has gone wrong with Puerto Rico? Right. Why is Puerto uh, again, Rico different from other other places in that region yeah, of the yeah. world? Um, I, I want to know if if poor people are able to move off the island, or if it's really only for the upwardly mobile. No, I mean, uh, I mean, there's there's definitely like uh, uh, Puerto Rico is uh, more than fifty percent of of Puerto Ricans live under the federal poverty guidelines, right? So uh, there's a lot of Puerto Ricans that. I would say cannot even afford uh, a JetBlue ticket, right, uh, to to Orlando, which is the, now the favorite destination. Oh. Uh, but uh, I would say, like you know, like lower middle income, middle class are mostly the ones that are that are living. Like the well off, I mean, they they don't have any reasons to live. You know, they have the political connections, they have the family connections, uh, and there's really no big reason for them to leave. Uh, you know, they've. They've always been empowered. This uh, actual, this uh, Commonwealth uh, status or whatever you want to call it, has actually benefited that minority. So they they are the ones that, you know, they are not that affected by this crisis. The problem are is the uh, Puerto Rican working class, the salary, the salary class, and the you know and the low income that may have some families and they you know the families help them buy a ticket and they just go and they go Um, let me ask you about what kind of puerto rican community you found in colorado is there much of one sure uh well i think i mean i it's a i think it's 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 not as big as in other states it's a 
but I think it's fairly active. Uh, uh, I will say just uh, I was to, I went to a party probably like uh, two months ago and uh, easily I could count like 100 Puerto Ricans between the Boulder and the Rabbit. I just went to that party right. And just like two weeks ago, uh, we had the Puerto Rican like festivities here in downtown Denver. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we, we we have like uh, professionals, a lot of students that come to see you to pursue uh, graduate studies. Um, others, I mean, they just have like a relative or family that have here, and they just come and and um, and many, I, I suppose, don't you know, don't have like the English speaking skills, don't have like uh, uh, college degrees. And they think that, you know, moving to the States is, is going to solve all their problems. So there's also a lot of love of those Puerto Ricans that come to, to, to Denver, come to, to Colorado, come to other states. And, and they think that it's going to be easy uh, because they are U.S. citizens. But, you know, the we are only U.S. citizens in paper, right? We Our experience is more closely to that of the of the immigrants. I mean, uh, uh, we have to uh, to settle in a different culture, in a different uh, setting, uh, the English barrier is uh, is very very uh, it's, it's, it's like a difficult uh, roadblock for many Puerto Ricans. Right, so it's not a se- those it's that are not well, not a seamless mm-hmm. transition, even though you are citizens. Thank you so much for being with us, Luis. Sure, no problem. Thank you for having me. Luis Ponce recently relocated to Denver from Puerto Rico. He's one of more than two hundred thousand Puerto Ricans that have left the island in just the past five years. Up next. The most expensive piece of art Denver International Airport has ever commissioned. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. You've likely seen the giant blue horse known as Mustang at Denver International Airport. It's part of DIA's public art collection. There are six new works there with a collective price tag of $6 million. CPR's arts reporter Corey Jones introduces us to the most expensive piece DIA has ever commissioned. Susan Davenport steps off the new A-Line train at DIA. The Denver resident is not here to catch a flight. She's here to check out the airport's recent changes now that the hotel and transit center are done. And the first thing Davenport sees when she leaves the train? Well, we see this elaborate display of logs, apparently in some kind of a pattern, but we don't know what the pattern represents. There are 236 logs arranged around the train platform. Davenport has a hunch it's art, but... I would be interested to know who the artist is and be able to know a little bit more about the story. There's no plaque up yet to tell you what this art is. That's coming. So we went to the artist. That's your log right there. This is Patrick Merrold of Denver, and he calls this log sculpture Shadow Array. All these logs come from trees killed off by beetles in southwest Colorado. It occurred to Merrill that he could reuse them for art. And you can see the shadows are right there on the landscape. That was the intention of this piece all along, to uh, really take advantage of this solar exposure. These are large logs. The longest one is about the length of a tennis court. And the logs cast long shadows, which always change. They move. I mean, the earth moves. (laughs) So the shadows move based on where the sun's angle is set. Merrill says he was inspired by Colorado's landscapes. The wood is a nod to the mountains, while the shadows call attention to the harsh sunlight in the eastern plains. He says it's meant to remind people where they are. I think public art is about familiarity and starting to understand your surroundings through the art. The sculpture took Merrill and his team more than three years to complete. His budget, more than $2 million. It's the most expensive public art commission at DIA ever. 
Another $4 million went to five other installations. That includes a wall mural and a metal and gold leaf sculpture that represents the Colorado River. These artworks are part of Denver's public art program. A 1991 ordinance requires that the city's major construction projects set aside money for art. That happens when Denver completes a capital improvement project that costs more than a million dollars. Then, 1% of the budget goes toward art for the site. And so this airport is just one giant capital improvement project. So they have public art going on all the time. That's Kendall Peterson. She was brought on to manage the public art for DIA's new hotel and transit center. Peterson says a selection committee of airport staff, community members, and artists went for big pieces that would help stressed travelers relax. And so what we wanted was artwork that would make them maybe pause for a little second and look at something like a kinetic sculpture and really kind of calm them down. There's a 3D video screen you can watch as you ride an escalator. And the outdoor plaza has 18,000 aluminum blades that mimic grass. They move when the wind blows. Peterson says this art is in places where people will linger. Normally art is definitely relegated to a certain group of people, and here you have it everywhere. And these are top-notch artists. But there is one big difference between public art at DIA and public art in the city, and that is who pays for it. Pieces in the city, like in parks, get funded with tax dollars. Public art at DIA does not. That's because the airport is known as an enterprise fund. Denver International Airport operates like a government-owned business. That's DIA spokesperson Stacy Stegman. She says that while the airport is a city agency, it generates its own revenue. Money comes from different things, like the landing fees airlines pay, down to that cup of coffee you buy before a flight. So all of those things combined generate about $900 million a year to the airport specifically. Some of those dollars go toward art as mandated by that city ordinance. In the meantime, construction continues at the airport, like in Concourse C, which has five new gates. And DIA has plans to redesign the main terminal and to build a community around the airport. All of this work means more money being set aside for future public art projects. I'm Corey Jones, CPR News. Corey's story is part of a reporting project focused on public art in Colorado and the money behind it. If you want the story behind a piece of art in your community, tweet us a photo at NewsCPR, again, at NewsCPR, and learn more about this project at CPRnews.org. From the outside, Denver's Access Gallery looks like any other on Santa Fe Drive. But Access teaches people with mental and physical disabilities to create art getting blind people, for instance, to take photographs. The gallery's executive director, Damon McLeese, will challenge assumptions about arts and artists at Saturday's TEDx Mile High event, Make and Believe. And Damon is here with a preview. Welcome to the program. Well, thank you for having me. Teaching blind people photography. How does that work? Well, um, basically, a lot of people assume that blind people wouldn't be interested in photography and we also make a lot of assumptions about what people in disabilities might be interested in in general. So I like to challenge those assumptions, turn those up on their heads. And really, if you think about it, taking a photograph is just pointing a camera at something and pulling the trigger. Yeah. So just because someone's blind doesn't mean that they can't do that. 
Or yeah. wouldn't be interested in that. And yet they wouldn't be able to appreciate the results in the way that a sighted person would. What do they get from that experience? I think part of the experience is proving that they can do something that people don't expect them to be able to do. And secondly, there's a, a, a range of what we consider blind. Some mm-hmm. people do have some vision. Um, they may not be able to drive or they may not be able to do certain things because of their vision. But they have a little bit of vision and can make out shadow and light and, and bigger objects. And then some people are completely blind and we challenge them to take photographs of things that they can touch or hear. And it's really a pretty simple process. We either put the camera right up to their forehead, or they put the camera right up to their forehead, or they put it on the end of their arm and they stick it out like an elephant trunk. And then you're pointing at basically what what you're hearing or, or what you would be looking at if you were able to see. How have the photos turned out and what are they of? Um, We did a project with the Colorado Ballet last year. They are um, at the end of our block, and we went down there, and we took photographs of the wardrobe room and of a studio dance class of young artists um, learning a ballet, ballet. Because if you think about it, a lot of people don't think in terms of people who are blind enjoying dance as well. So we were really trying to challenge two stereotypes, one about people who are blind taking photographs and the second about them being interested in dance. There are examples of this at our website, cprnews.org. They're striking, I have to say. Tell me more about the other artists you work with. What what is the range of, of disabilities that they have? Well, we, we really work with the full range of, of um, disability. We work, we've done programs for preschoolers who are autistic all the way through people um, who have Alzheimer's. And our primary focus is young people with disabilities that kind of fall through the cracks. Our main purpose is to increase economic opportunities for young people with disabilities through the arts. And there goes the gallery. And everything we do at the gallery is about earning or providing economic opportunities. So it's not just about making art, but about selling it. Absolutely. We realized that a lot of our young people, the biggest challenge that they were facing wasn't the fact that they had a disability. It was the fact that they couldn't get a job or they didn't have access to economic opportunity. A lot of our students come to us and they've never held a a traditional job. Some of our students will never hold a traditional job. It doesn't mean that they don't want to buy things or or contribute or somehow earn a little bit of money. So everything from our Artemat machine, which is a cigarette machine dispensing original pieces of art for $5, to painting a portrait of your pet, to creating and um, displaying corporate artwork. So we have corporations hire us to make artwork for their boardrooms or their front lobbies. These artomats, these art vending machines, those are, where are those? Well, we have one. The Artemat machines are all across the country. There's 90 machines across the country, and we have one here at Access Gallery. Um, If you think about it, you might come in and meet our artist, Nicole, who paints lovely dragons, but you may not want a $60 dragon painting for your living room, but a $5 dragon painting for your car might be just the bill. So that's sort of how we enter. You mentioned the work with young people who have autism. Yes. What's the nature of the of the art that they make? Um, it really depends. A lot of times we'll just come up with an idea. We did a, a project last year called Art, Autism, and Architecture, and we partnered with the Clifford Still Museum to explore the ideas of architecture. Once again, this was a photo project, but we really just looked at um, the building. We went in and le- learned about architecture. We learned about the, the angles and the forms that you might find in a building, and we worked with the students with autism. I don't want to assume that a disability means a disadvantage in the arts. No. Uh, Can we talk about ways in which uh, being differently abled Mm -hmm. um, is actually an advantage in terms of perspective or insight? Well, I I actually sort of – 
I believe that we all have some challenge in our life, whether we are identified as having a disability or not. And I believe that the arts are a way that everyone can enter into the conversation. You know, somewhere along the line, every child, if you go to a school early on, every child believes that they're an artist. And somewhere along the line, some of us stop believing that. I believe that the arts, regardless of where you're entering, whether you have a disability or not, can help you enter the conversation that can level the playing field. So we can all become artists. We can all learn. And the fact that somebody has a disability or not really isn't important to the creation of the art making. You might have to adapt. We might have to put a bigger handle on a paintbrush, or we might have to hook a roller to a wheelchair, or we might have to find a way to steady a camera on somebody who shakes. But that's that's um, more mechanics rather than it is creativity. How do you steady a camera on someone who shakes? Um, actually, what we do is we usually attach it to something that is um, uh, stable, something that doesn't move. And then we put um, one of the cords that you can fire the, the camera remotely. And then we can either have somebody roll over it with their wheelchair or their foot or whatever whatever um, movement they have available to them. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner and ahead of his speech at TEDx Mile High. We're speaking with Damon McLeese. He um, is executive director of the Access Gallery on Santa Fe in Denver. And it is a gallery that provides artistic and economic opportunities to folks with disabilities. Damon, may I share with you one of my favorite stories about assumptions when it comes to people, in this case, with developmental disabilities? Sure. Okay, so this is Timothy P. Shriver of the Special Olympics, who likes the term diff-abilities, diff-abilities, that people's abilities are simply different. And he was on NPR talking about the day President Clinton visited a Special Olympics event in 1995. One of the professional photographers saw a group of Special Olympics athletes and noticed that they'd each had their little single-use cameras Mm -hmm. that they'd been given, and they were trying to get a picture of the president, only they all had their cameras backwards. And he said to them, you know, you have to turn your camera around, and then you look through the viewfinder, and you click the button, and you'll get a picture of the president way up high. And the athlete, one of them turned to him and said, oh, thank you so much. He said, but if you look through the viewfinder backwards, it works just like binoculars and you can see the president perfectly clearly. And I love the story, uh, Scott, because that uh, photographer was well-intentioned. But boy, were appearances deceiving. I have never forgotten that story. And it makes me wonder to what extent folks with disabilities are limited, not because of their own abilities, but because of what we assume their abilities to be. Oh, absolutely. And I think that's the core of what we try and do at Access Gallery. Um, When people walk into the gallery and they see the artwork up on the wall and they say, oh, I had no idea this was created by somebody with a disability, I truly feel like I've done my job. Because the disability really is secondary. We all have certain physical limitations that we, we have to deal with. But really, the creation of art, there's always a way to figure out how to make art. There's always a way to do it. Can this be a profession for some of these students? Oh, absolutely. Um, once again, if our primary purpose is economic opportunity for young people with disabilities, they've never held traditional jobs. So any economic opportunity for them is wonderful. A $50 check, a $100 check. Over time, some of our artists have become... Um, more sellable. They're becoming more marketable. They're becoming more recognized as artists in and of their own right. And and it is a way for some of our artists to make money. 
Is it seen by some as outsider art? Absolutely. We, is there a risk of fetishizing it, though? Absolutely. Um, there is. Okay. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Um, some people are looking for that naive or that outsider type of art. And yeah. we have a lot of that. A lot of our artists are self-trained. A lot of our artists don't go to art school. They don't have that formal training, either because intellectually they may not be able to handle the rigors of an art school, or they don't have the opportunity to go to the art school. One of our biggest things is to, is to get our artists from going from sketching and drawing into painting or other mediums. Um, almost all of our students come to us and they can draw because they've been sitting at the back of the classroom for years not knowing what's going on, so they can all sketch. So when they come to us, the idea is to get them to do something that might be a little bit more marketable, a little bit more sellable, or a little bit more outside of what they're comfortable with. Hmm. Thanks for your time. Well, thank you. Damon McLeese, Executive Director of Denver's Colorado Access Gallery and Studio. He's a speaker at this weekend's TEDx Mile High event, which is called Make and Believe. Other speakers include the CEO of Water for People, a Colorado group that works to improve water and sanitation services in developing countries, and a tech guru turned store owner who describes himself as a practical futurist. It's happening this weekend at TEDx Mile High. That's Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner. Thanks for being with us.